I have given the passage in that way, in that fashion, to just to give you a better a view of the text. As I will talk about three marks of a true church. But let me read these verses for us. Only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too, from God. Amen. Just to recap, last week I've discovered something that is really amazing for me, and I'm sure for you too. Because when you listen to this verse 27 in any other translations, for example in NASB, it says in this way, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. But literally, as you listen to how it comes to us in that original text, the very first words that people are hearing from this text is not conduct, but it is worthy. Only worthy of the gospel of Christ live your lives. I really like that because conducting yourselves, that is important. But when it is couched in the gospel of Christ, our hearts are warmed up to that. We are more joyful in receiving that command. But we also noticed that word, live your lives, is not a common word. We have noticed that word has polis, the Greek city-state polis in it. So basically it is saying, you belong to that city of God and discharge your obligations to God. So it is not simply stop lying, stop stealing, be good, live your life worthy of the gospel. But really, it is saying, as you belong to the heavenly community, God's kingdom, discharge your obligations to God and to the people around you was the idea. I think the difference is really stark. And I really loved it, how we saw it in the original language. So today, what I want to do is to give you those three things. How Apostle Paul will explain that worthiness of the gospel should look like. It is more than, once again, moral conduct of your life. Because Paul has heavenly citizenship in his mind... And if you are a citizen of Church of Christ, these things we must discharge. These are your obligations. 
But what do you notice before you look at those three things? In between the command, live your lives, and the three things that he will talk about, couched in between, sandwiched in between, is this. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances. What Paul is saying through that sentence is, living your life, discharging the obligations, and these are the ways in which you are going to do that, he is inserting himself in between that command and the congregation in Philippi, saying, whether I come or not able to come, remain absent, I will hear about you. I will hear about your standing. I will come and examine you. Remember, I am listening to the news about your conduct. So what I would say, before even we look at those three things, the necessity of accountability. He's serious about this. He wants to hold them responsible for their conduct. If you know Paul, elsewhere, he will say these things. To Corinthian church, he says, for you can have 10,000 instructors in Christ, but I am your father. Elsewhere in Philemon, if you know that short letter, Philemon, he's asking Philemon to release Onesimus, who was a runaway slave of Philemon. But Paul befriended him. Now he's a Christian, and he wants Onesimus to help him, serve him. So he's sending a letter to Philemon, the original owner, Christian friend, to release him. And toward the end of that request in the letter, you know what he says? He says, at the same time, prepare me a lodging, for I hope to come to you. You know what he's saying? He's pressing him. I am requesting you to release him as a brother in Christ, but I am coming to you. So in one sense, he says, you better do it. I am coming. Here too, Paul is saying, discharge your obligations as citizens of kingdom of God. But I am, I am looking at you. I am hearing about you. So what is he saying? He is saying to them, to the Philippian church, I am not your friend. I am not simply your mentor. I am not simply your teacher. I am your father and pastor. When you think about the word accountability, usually you think about accountability in between your friends, Christian friends, in men's group or women's group or, or in Sunday school. But today I want to talk about that vertical relationship. The accountability that you have with your pastor. 
Accountability is important even between peers, but it really does not carry any kind of binding authority. You could confide in, you could share your struggles, but at the end of the day, your friends are not going to give an account to God. It is actually that great obligation falls onto me. Hebrews 13:17 write that down Hebrews 13:17 actually says this obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account let them do this with joy and not with grief for this would be unprofitable for you Remember, Paul said in earlier verses, if I remain, if I don't die, and if I remain, it is for you. It is necessary for your sake. I want to remain for your progress and your joy in Christ. Remember. So what Paul is saying here, whether I come or not, I am going to hear about you. He is inserting himself, reminding them, I am not simply your friends. I am not simply recipient of your money or help. I am your spiritual father. And I am responsible for you. And he's reminding them of it. And I think it's very important that we know this. Forget about people who may abuse that verse. But in the church, that's the way it is. God has set over you, overseers, the elders and pastors, in this case me, and our session. To oversee your souls. And who's going to give an account to God for your soul? It's not your friends, first and foremost. That could help. That is nice. That's important. But like this, I want simply you to know that is the case. And I have given you the larger catechism. And it is long, but I'm going to read it. 129th question. All of you are superior to someone. Superior here means not I'm better than you, but a little bit higher spiritual in spiritual authority sense. And all of you are in some sense that. If you are a seven-year-old child, if you have younger sibling, you are superior to them. And all of you, fathers and mothers, this is very important. This is the wisdom from the old Christians. What is required, and they are talking about the fifth commandment. What is required of superiors towards their inferiors? It is required of superiors according to that power they receive from God and the relation wherein they stand to do what? Telling them what to do? telling them to discharge their obligations. But look at, listen to this wisdom, to love, pray for, and bless their inferiors, to instruct, counsel, and admonish them, countenancing, commanding, and rewarding such as do well, and discountenancing, reproving, chastising such as do ill, 
protecting, providing for them all things necessary, body and soul? No, for soul and body. And by grave, wise, holy, and exemplary carriage to procure glory to God, honor to themselves, and so to preserve that authority which God has put upon them. It's an old school saying, authority. What gave Apostle Paul such an authority? His life, his conduct in prison. So they respect Paul. Paul does not have to invoke the apostleship. I am an apostle of Christ, and you better listen. But the way that he loved them, cared for them, but now he's in prison. Yes, receiving the money and help from the Philippian church, but he's reminding them of it. And I think it'll be good, it'll do well for you to keep this in mind and try to practice this great wisdom that we receive. So that's the, that's the accountability part. Now let's briefly look at the three marks. If you go to a seminary and if they ask you, what are the three marks of a true church? If you write anything else, you get zero. Because there is that standard answer to that question. What are those? Three marks of a, three, a true church. Why not four marks? Why not ten marks? Nine marks down in D.C.? Traditionally, it is the preaching of the gospel, right administration of the sacraments, and the church discipline. Those are the three things that you need to write down. If you write anything else, I think praise is necessary, then you get zero. But anyhow, as you look at this, Nobody could say these are the three things and three things only that will define a true church. Who says? In that context, in the Reformation context, those three things were important. But as you look at this, I want you to think about these three things as three marks of a true church. To function as a church, to be a church, what are we supposed to do? When you think about preaching, sacraments, church discipline, it is all from pastors to the congregation. It is not what they are supposed to do. It is not explained. So listen to these three things. First thing is this. What do you see? That you, that's plural you, you are standing firm in one spirit. You are standing firm in one spirit. That means to continue to stand. There's that ongoing activity of you standing firm in one spirit. That's what it means to be a church. It's not simply coming to a church. But to be a true church, we need to stand firm in one spirit. So the debate really is on the spirit. Is that Holy Spirit or human spirit? In the context, I will choose human spirit in one spirit. But ultimately, 
that one spirit comes from what? Whom? From the Holy Spirit. The question then is, how can we become one spirit in the Holy Spirit? And the good question to ask is this. Where does the Holy Spirit work? If Holy Spirit is the ultimate source, source of us being one in Christ, we need to ask, where and when does the Holy Spirit work? Well, the Holy Spirit is really omnipresent in, in the believer's lives. But we know when Christ is exalted, that's when the Holy Spirit is especially at work. So worship will be one. Fellowship in the name of Christ will be one. Serving will be one. And Bible study will be one. In those instances, we get to know one another. And as we have that fellowship in the world or some kind of fellowshipping together with other saints, that's how we are going to find ourselves one in spirit. That really is not a remarkable thing to hear. Let's say you went to a church planters conference or church growth conference, something like that. You pay to attend, let's say. And the famous preacher comes up and he says, these are the three ways in which you could build your church. First thing, stand firm in one spirit. You will say, money back, please. That's not, this is not exciting story. Very fundamental story. But if you could put this up in your desk, this verse, this, these verses, oh, that's what I should be doing. This is what we as a church should be doing. How? Let me think about it. Let me, let me pray to God about it. God, give me wisdom. And talk, share, suggest. But the important thing is that you know to be a church is to stand firmly together in one spirit. What is that? That's how you discharge your citizenship as a Christian. It is not simply me preaching good gospel, pure gospel, or, or participating in the Lord's Supper or baptism, or listen to some church discipline case. But you, as a member of that citizenship, in, as a kingdom of God, remember that this is an important thing, I think. This is God's command. Standing firm in one spirit. Second thing is what? It's not simply standing together, but literally with one soul, striving together actually striving side by side for the faith of the good news. You know, in the church websites, there are vision statements, purpose statements, and values, and so on. And 
I've said it many times. I always thought that's a little artificial. Because what kind of value can we have as a church other than what the Bible says? How can you come up with such a cute vision statement when we, as a church, we should strive to be all that we can be as we find the commandments of God in the Word? So these are the things in which we can think about it as a vision or value, purpose statement as a church. First thing is to stand together in one spirit. Second thing is, not simply that, but positively. It's not simply defense only, but here, contending together. We are fighting together. For what purpose? Past couple of years, you have found so many churches making something other than the gospel as their chief aim. To fight against the world. Whatever it is, I don't have to spell it out for you. People were angry, Christians, I'm talking about Christians, siding with this or that policy, anything but. I think it is important for us to remember why are we here? The world is not one mind. The word is one soul. Suke. And immediately that line came to my mind. Do you remember when, for the first time, Jonathan met David? Their souls were knit together. One mind is not simply, I agree with you. But our souls being knitted together. As one. Contending together, that word is striving together side by side. Now, once again, when I was reading this, it's not some insightful story from some success story. But fundamentally speaking, this is what God wants. What God commands you. And what is required of us is what? Obedience. So, let me ask you this question. Are you contending for the gospel, for the faith of the gospel, alongside with someone? That's the question. That's the picture. That's the commandment from God. Not simply Paul. This is God's word. So this is a good time for you to examine yourselves as this stands as a mirror for you. With one soul striving side by side. And you have seen in the movies how the soldiers, they stand together and form a unit. Idea is, what's the opposite of this? Striving side by side. The opposite of this is contending by yourself. A good Christian doing all he or she can by himself or by herself, doing everything they can alone. That's not the picture. What's the opposite of it? 
is fighting against one another. And as I've said it many times, good church is non-fighting church internally. When you're fighting, you cannot do anything as a church. So idea is this, when I am striving to obey God for the gospel, you look around, do you see anybody next to you? Striving side by side is the picture. It's not walking hard. That's a true church. It's not having a good pastor only. That would be good. It's not having some famous or important or influential people who've been doing that for a long time, serving in various parts in the church so we could function as a church. What's the picture? Picture is like this. If somebody's playing here, and if you know how to play, you come alongside with her and ask her, do you need some help? In the bag, you look around. Nobody's doing it. That's your place. Sunday school. Women's group. Man's group. Someone next to you. I think it's very important, especially for a church like this, that this would be realized. Or we may lose heart. You look around and you don't see anybody and you ask yourself, is this worth it? Am I the only one who's concerned about this? Remember the story, the wine. They pour the wine. If you don't pour your wine, there's no big wine jug. So remember that. The last one. So what's the first one? Standing. Standing. Firmly. Second thing is striving together. Third one really is not a third separate category, but it is simply telling us what we shouldn't be doing at all times. That is, in no way alarmed by our opponents, people who oppose gospel. The word alarmed is a weak translation. Commentators say the word describes a horse startled in the battlefield, jumping up and down. Once you are scared, you are divided, and you are scattered. So church cannot function. But why should we ever be scared or terrified. As we talked about it, only way the Satan and the world could frighten you is when you have the same value as the world does. That's the only time or the only way that could scare you. Think about it. To die is what? 
To die is gain. As I've been saying, if you could say that personally or as a church, there's not a thing they could do to frighten you. Why? Because we are not there. What, what, what is worse than death? Nothing, we say. Then what can man do to you? Zero. So do not be alarmed. You need to align your values to the scriptures. Or else, you will always be scared. Which is a sign of destruction for them, the opposing people. What is the sign? What we do that we talked about. Standing firm together in one spirit, one soul, striving together, all that is a sign for them, for their destruction. But that is a sign for us, for our salvation, and that too from God. Just like in 2 Corinthians 2, there's one aroma of Christ, but to the people who are perishing, to them that's an aroma from death to death, to the people who are being saved, same aroma, but aroma from life to life, the same sense. If we stand together in one spirit, in one soul, standing firm, striving side by side for the gospel, that fact alone is a sign that they are being destroyed, that we are being saved. So those are the three really marks of a true church. Something to think about. Pray about it. Put this right in front of your desk. Read it every time. Pray for God's wisdom. Pray for you that you could participate in the gospel in that fashion. Pray for this church that we will have that unity and striving, striving together for that gospel of Christ. As I said, these three things are not some secret formula. Anybody, any Christian could think about this. Oh, we should be united. We should do things together. But again, this is God's commandments. A remarkable thing is this. This was written 60, 80, 63 to 64, in between, somewhere in between. These three things... It's not a big strategy. But think about the Roman Empire. After 2,000 years later, the mightiest empire the world has ever known is no more. All the emperors, you don't remember. You know Nero, all forgotten. Church? What is church in Philippi compared to that mighty empire? But if they held on to these words, the kingdom of God will persist until Jesus' return. Philippi was a Roman colony, mini Rome, a replica of Rome. Wannabe 
Rome. They were proud of their citizenship. Only in the colonies they had the citizenship, at least at the time. Now, Philippi, I don't know if you have been there. I haven't. But I saw the pictures. You know what's there in Philippi? Ruins. It's a tourist site. The Church of Christ. Imagine 2,000 years ago when that church was built. At least we know three members of that church from Acts 16. Lydia, from the city of Tyatira, a seller of purple fabrics. Modern-day Gucci shop owner. Second person that we notice is a slave girl having a spirit of divination was bringing her masters much money by fortune-telling. Demon-possessed slave girl owned by thugs of that city. Much abused. We don't know for sure whether she continued in the church, but Paul saves her. We know the third member, jailer, correctional facility officer. Pensioner. So what do they have in common? Lydia, demon-possessed slave girl, and a jailer. What do they have in common? That's right. They have Jesus Christ. That's the only common thing that they have. And the providence of God was such that God brought those three and the family of Lydia and family of that jailer together. That's the first church in Philippi. Ten years prior to Paul at the time of this writing. So they grew because we find deacons and elders in that church. And as I was thinking about that, if they could build a church, then we can, by the grace of God. We have the same Christ. We have the same Holy Spirit. Let us keep this in mind. Standing firm in one spirit, one soul contending together for the faith, and not being alarmed or frightened by the world, then God will build his church and we, with Paul, will say we could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. May God build you up, build your families up, and build this church up. Let's pray.